agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Mike, I'm feeling like I'm a Texas voter on a Sunday morning, just uh, <laughs> just waiting for the polls open to get to get out there and uh, uh, do my thing and enjoy the weekend. There, so. there you go. All right. Well, we we will certainly we will certainly talk a little bit about that. Uh, but before we get to that, the first thing we always want to do is thank our latest supporters on Patreon, uh, Christopher and Brandon. And also, I wanted to mention Jen, who recently became a Patreon supporter of the show. She wrote in to say. I hesitated joining before as I didn't really need an additional podcast. I, I know how that feels. She said, but I've Can't been, blame su- me, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, I've been supporting more podcasts and I wanted to include yours. And we really do appreciate that. So thank you very much. Also, yes, we in all seriousness. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And we also had a, a, a new supporter on Venmo, David. Thank you, David. And of course, you guys know that as a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You get ad-free versions of all our shows, other things at different levels of support. Just to check it out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if financial issues are preventing you from supporting a show, but you would like that midweek show, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And as I mentioned, you can also support us through Venmo. We're at Politics Guys. And on today's show, Jay and I are going to be talking about voting rights in Texas, as Jay just alluded to, and um, I think also the consequences both in the state and nationally of that likely new law, uh, why many businesses are struggling to find workers and what, if anything, government can or should do about it, the big rise in crime over the last year, and uh, depending on how much time we have, we might even get the Pride Month and Florida's new transgender sports ban. So we will get to that in just one minute. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Okay, Jay, so as you as you suggested in the opening, we are going to be starting off this week by talking about things in Texas. Yes, so... Um... Uh, our first story, uh, Mike, uh, as, as most people know, the Texas legislature uh, is uh, sort of inches away from uh, passing a new uh, voting law, uh, which some have described uh, President Biden most uh, conspicuous among them as, as un-American and assault on democracy. Uh, the bill was set to uh, go to a vote last week when Texas Democrats uh, walked out, uh, depriving the legislature of a quorum. Uh, now, the next step is the governor can call for a special session, which uh, uh, he, he is going to do if he hasn't officially done so already, uh, which would require them to show up. And, and uh, you know, most most observers believe that the bill will be voted on and approved. So in parts of this bill, and again, this is, is something that you and I can get into, uh, one, it would roll back uh, drive-through 24-hour voting, uh, which was used in Harris County in, in Texas, that's the Houston area, uh, during the 2020 pandemic. Um, it would uh, expand two weeks of early voting, uh, set hours for that. There'll be 12 hours on week weekdays, uh, six hours on um Weekends it would also expand that that uh, early voting from counties with 100,000 people in population to those with 30,000. 
uh, would require state ID numbers or a last four digits of social security number uh, for uh, mail-in voting. Um, it would. Uh, there's there's a whole lot of things. There's there. a lot it would do. I think <laughs> so it's something I like know, 67 pages. Yeah. One of them. Uh, employers would be barred from uh, 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 refusing to excuse workers during early voting week to go vote. Um, it would uh, change the um, uh, rules in, in terms of, of whether votes should be invalidated from clear and convincing to a preponderance of the evidence. And and probably the the provision that's gotten the most attention, um, it would change the Sunday early voting. Uh, the polls would open at uh, 1 p.m. under the current version. Um, now, there's been some talk in the last couple of days that that might be walked back. There was also a suggestion that the 1 p.m. was was a typo and it should have been 11 a.m. Um, uh, but regardless, uh, those those are the the key provisions. And I again, there are a lot more uh, in there. Um, but well, I guess Mike, my, my question to you is, you know, legislation good or bad? Do you think this is an assault on democracy? Yeah, I, I, just one quick thing. I want to, I know listeners will want to uh, what would take me to task for not mentioning a couple of other provisions oh, that please, I think yes. on the left. And that would be the giving poll watchers a little bit more freedom uh, in, inside uh, polling places. And that's some folks taking issue with that. And also making it a felony to send out unsolicited absentee ballot applications. Um, uh, but, yeah, go back to your. Back to your general question there, uh, that that language, you know, in the New Republic this week, there was an article called The Overthrow of American Democracy Begins in Texas. Just this morning, I looked at The Guardian, uh, saw an article called Is America Heading to a Place Where It Can No Longer Call Itself a Democracy? And you know, Jay, that I've I've often criticized you and those on the right for slippery slope arguments. And it would be, I think, hypocritical of me not to level the same criticism at people on the left who are, I understand they're trying to sell well, clicks or, you know, subscriptions or what have you. And so, no, I, I do not see this as Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Crow on steroids or the end of American democracy. I thought they, 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 one reference, Jim Crow in a tuxedo. That's, that's a new one to me. That's, Which I'm not sure I really understand. I, I don't know what that means. No, I'm but. Sure anyone, I understood Jim Crow on steroids, but yeah, go ahead. But. <laughs> But no, I, I I think it's easy. I, I understand why it is the, the hyperbole is being used, and I certainly do not believe it's a move in the right direction. But I, I also, I guess that you know, obviously we see this on both sides. Everything that the other side is doing is the end of democracy. It's either on the right. What we tend to hear, I think, is, well, uh, socialism is, you know, it's the, the favorite word. I think everything that anyone on the left wants to do is clearly we're bringing socialism to America. And, you know, I think it's really we'll, we'll get to that in the labor shortage. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's really unfortunate, but I understand what's driving it. But no, I think it's important that if we want to push back against that, we have to be willing to do it on our own side as well. And so I, I would hope you would agree that that for the most part, the Democratic Party is not intent on bringing full-throated socialism to the United States. And I, you know, I don't believe that, you know, what we are seeing in Texas and Georgia and other states is the end of democracy. But that being said, I don't think it's a good thing. And, and I think that it is intended. I mean, we've seen this template in a number of states now. They've all been Republican states. And it seems to me that there's a clear uh, 
there's a clear pattern. Early voting is expanded in a smaller, more rural areas that just coincidentally happen to have more Republican voters, and it's restricted in more urban areas, which just coincidentally happen to have more likely Democratic voters. And I'm I'm sure. But in this case, it's not. It's it's. I mean, there aren't new restrictions in urban areas. It's just there. There's an expansion into more rural areas. I mean, and shouldn't the if the idea is let's make it easier for everybody to vote, shouldn't that be okay? Well, yeah, and and I would say you know it's it's interesting to me that for well for generations, one sort of article of faith among conservatives is this idea of subsidiarity. Uh, Jay, you're familiar with that term. It's basically this idea of allowing, Big word, go- Mike. but yeah, you know, allowing governments at the at the level closest to the people to make these decisions. And so, you know, it occurs to me that, well, if you want uh, governments at the level closest to the people to make these decisions, well, then Harris County should be allowed to, you know, make these decisions about voting. But, you know, the state of Texas clearly is not okay with subsidiarity, with local control in this issue. And I think it's it's because, well, a couple of things. I think it's certainly because these are democratic areas, and that's the main thing. I also think it's a response to their kind of core of voters who falsely believe that there are all sorts of problems with elections, and so they're they are addressing that that belief that that false perception on the part of on the part of their core supporters. And so I think that's largely what's going on, you know. And, and I think it's not surprising that uh, ostensible principles are are giving way to you know what voters what what the party's voters want. So, so because I, I think that's that's a good point. The subsidiarity um, uh, argument, and I my my sense from the the right, I think the response would be yes. Uh, I I would, and I think most most uh, conservatives, most Republicans do see that as uh, look the government the level of the government that is closest to you governs best um for for a whole lot of reasons um you know basically because if if you're mad at the school board or the uh the city council uh you can show up on a meeting and and uh, let them know about it or you run into your representative at the grocery store or 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 what have you but there's a uh a more close uh, uh relation and, and more uh, therefore presumably theoretically more accountability um, also, yeah, people at the local level, it's, if you don't like, uh, your, your city council person or something, you can put together a campaign and run yourself or, or, you know, send a couple hundred bucks to somebody who's running and, and it might make a big difference compared to, uh, saying I want to uh, oust my sitting Senator. Um, but I, I do think there's also a counter argument on something like elections, uh, where you want to have a. Uh, there there is some sort of uniformity that's that's required particularly when we're talking about uh, uh you know going into federal elections so i i i get the subsidiary uh that that argument that maybe we're better off with local control um but i do think there there needs to be uh some basic statewide standards um uh, otherwise you you do risk the the problem of some people in some counties uh, have have more rights, have more access than than others. Um, that said, I mean, in, in you know, and in, in, in fairness, you pointed out where you think your side is is overstepping. Um, to me, I, I look at this as the um, the Sunday voting. First of all, uh, one, I'll start with. I think this is completely overblown and uh, silly and ridiculous. Um, 
And it's also a little demeaning, I think, that the idea that, well, people can't get to the polls unless they go to church first and and uh, then they're driven to the polls. Um, and also those conservative, I, I, I really, there's there's something wonderful in that uh, uh, the government uh, is, is uh, or the, the left is sort of admitting it's easier for people to get to church, uh, to interact with, with, uh, with the church than it is to interact with the state. Um, but all, all that said, I, I think the way this was handled was was flat-footed and dumb. Um, now, Harris County Sunday voting last year uh, started at 12 o'clock. Uh, this year, it would be 1 o'clock. Um, supposing they move it back to 11. E- either way, I mean, I, I don't see this as as an assault on, on democracy um, or, or something that is, you know, so racially tinged that, uh, uh, you know, it, it requires a civil rights investigation. Um, but that said, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, dumb. It could have been handled better. Um, and my, my guess is that that Sunday provision does get walked back with probably an earlier start time. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I think look, there's, there's some practical considerations, uh, in terms of how often, you know, h- how long you can keep polls open. You have to pay poll workers, you have to keep facilities open. Um, and look, if, if, um, well, yeah, a couple I, of weeks ago. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say on that issue, you know, it seems to me that if if the intent were solely uh, election security and, you know, that that we're keeping with that ideal of limited regulation, local control, it seems to me that legislation then instead of outright banning things would set certain standards saying that, hey, if Harris County wants to open the polls on Sunday at 6 a.m., as long as they meet these standards for security and poll workers, well, that's 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 within that. But that's within their rights to go ahead and do that. And we're not going to step in and interfere, because if this is about election security, then it seems to me there's nothing wrong about 24 hour or drive through voting or any other type of thing you want to put together. So long as the county takes sufficient precautions to ensure that that those votes are secure. And so that that to me seems to be much more in line with a traditional Republican approach to light regulation as opposed to the sort of heavy handed, you will not do this sort of approach. It, it, here's, I mean, the heavy handedness in, in the bill, it, it says that uh, every uh, county uh, with 30,000 people or, or more shall provide at least 12 hours of early voting during the week and at least six hours uh, during the weekend. Uh, now, I think there's also a provision in there that says the the general period of time for those um, uh, voting hours should be between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m., uh, and it's up to local local counties to figure out whether they want to want to start at 6 and, and go to 6, or they can start at 6, go to 9, how, however, um, uh, start at 8, go to 9. Uh, and and I'll say so. So I read up on this, the Harris County experience in in the uh, drive-through voting. And again, this is something that was created just last year because of the pandemic. The idea being, you can just drive up in your car, you're handed a disinfected electronic uh, voting machine, um, like laptop type thing, not a you know yeah huge voting machine, uh, mm-hmm. and you can vote without leaving your car. Or it also allows for walk-up and, and so forth. <clears throat> you show a photo ID. Um, uh, so there there are, you know, security provisions there. And, and as I read it about it, I, I, don't, I didn't see it as practiced in Harris County, at least, as a 
tremendous risk uh, in terms of voter fraud. Um, there, the the concern that I think that it does prevent present some just some practical issues though, um, in terms of if if you're going to do this uh, county or, or statewide, um, having those people manning those those polls, all these places, all the time. Um, I think that can be that could be uh, a problem, and also I, I guess I I am a little concerned in that, um, you know do do we really need to is is it a are people being <clears throat> disenfranchised or uh, the better word that that I think you used uh, suppressed um, if you can't vote on at three in the morning on a Thursday night. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that's that's sort of my question. It, it seems that the, um, no, you know, I, I guess nothing nothing good happens after two a.m. Um, so I think there are some concerns uh, with you know <laughs> the late night after hours uh, voting type uh, situations, and and again how how it's handled, right? The the Harris County experience, which seems to be all electronic, I think is something different than. Uh, unmonitored drop boxes. Um, uh, so, so I, what I'm saying is, I, I don't see that as a huge security threat. Um, I do see it as if you're looking to have some sort of state uniformity, um, because a lot of the other counties in Texas might not have the resources that Harris County has. Um, I think I think there's there's an issue there. Well, I, th- I think um, other counties, you know, obviously don't have the population as well. And so when you're dealing with greater population density and different populations, different things might work better or worse, which, again, goes back to that argument for, you know, subsidiarity. But to your point about uh, sort of equal conditions across the state, you know, I actually think there are a lot. Of, in fact, I know that there are a lot of people who on the left who would not just agree with you, but who would argue to expand that saying that, well, exactly. People on the left never agree with me. Well, you know, there you go. (laughs) But, but the idea being that, yes, that, and in, in national elections, that there should be equal conditions, not just within a state, but across the country for net for, you know, voting, say for president. Now I, I know you would probably argue that, well, people don't actually vote for president. They vote for electors in their state and, and it's a state sort of thing. But of course, a lot of folks yeah. on the left would say, well, no, this is, this is de facto, you know, a national election. These are net, these are national political decisions. And so therefore uh, some people would even argue that it rises to the level of, you know, uh, equal protection violations uh, if if it is, you know, substantially more difficult for certain people to vote simply because they happen to be living in, say, Georgia or Texas, as opposed to, I don't know, Ohio or something like that. Well, well two things. First of all, I I'd, uh, I would argue that, that no, the, the difference is the Constitution assigns uh, to the states uh, to, to make their own voting rights, not to the federal government, to make their own voting rules, not to the federal government. Let me let me just um, let me just so say I, before so you, before you go on that. on that, though, actually, what the Constitution says is the states can do that, but Congress can legislate on that as well. So it's not a state; it's not a right that is given uh, specifically to the states. The states can, but so can the federal government, and I think it's important to point but, that out. But only well, again, the federal government only as to federal elections. Right, only as to federal elections. Yeah. Absolutely, only for congressional and presidential races. Yes. Yeah. Um, but my, I mean, the the idea is: look, the states were voting before there was a federal government, um, and they they brought those practices in there. And the Constitution recognized 
that states can set their own rules uh, for voting. Now, I think you're exactly right that uh, obviously there can be equal protection issues. Um, but do we start getting into a weird slippery slope of, of equal protection issues where if you say, hey, look, they got all night voting in Texas. Um, but hey, where I am, uh, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I have to stop voting. I can only vote till two in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with that you argument. Know, I mean, I think that's, that's the problem is, is you keep, you know, if, if you want to say, look, there is a, a baseline of, of, you know, democracy here that people need to participate. And obviously we shouldn't allow, um, uh, things that, that are intended to lock people out of the system, literacy tests, poll taxes, uh, all those things that, that uh, the Voting Rights uh, Act uh, got rid of, um, but but at the same time, just because you might have the slightest inconvenience, um, you know, in in terms of hey, I have to go do this to vote, as opposed to um, I'm going to have a poll worker come personally to my house and help me fill out my ballot. Um, I, I think that's that's the, the problem. And rhetorically, uh, it every time there are these changes. Uh, you know whether you want to call them restrictions or expansions, that's the rhetoric that's that's out there as well. Look, uh, somebody else can vote um, anytime they want. Um, you know, well, I want to, you know, water and and um, uh, you know, there there's a lack of vegan options in the voting line. I mean, that kind of thing. Sure. That, that it just keeps expanding and expanding to the point of of being silly. Yeah. No. And I, I you know, I appreciate that. I also appreciate that. A lot of these changes, like the like the drop boxes and like the drive-through voting, were were done in response to very unique the very unique circumstances yeah. of the pandemic. And so, it's not unreasonable for someone to say, "Well, then, what's the what's the objective?" There was no objection to the pre-pandemic procedures. What's the objection to going back to those procedures? Now, what a lot of folks on the left would say is, "Well, as long as there is no." major is not as long as there is no significant issue with with fraud then we should do everything we can to make voting as as frictionless as possible and i know that there are for a number of grounds you you know you have some issues with that and i, understand I think there that. ought to be some friction yeah um <laughs> i don't know not significant friction but um that no i mean it, it ought to be an intentional act and and people ought to be um uh, it it shouldn't be just a uh, my 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 fear and again you're going to say this is a slippery slope but um you know it, at what point I mean again going back to the you know the civil rights uh, uh, movement and you know John Lewis uh, getting his head bashed in uh, marching for for the right to vote um, and and now we've got it's it's sort of devolved into well, this is this is just like uh, uh, Jim Crow when we're talking about opening the polls on Sundays, which, you know, that's a new thing, um, you know, and, and while they're going to open at one instead of noon, um, you know, uh, again, this is the end of democracy. That's that's what what troubles me. And again, I, I think you're being, you know, uh, very intellectually honest on this, that, look, you can say, I, I, I think this is a good idea, bad idea. Um, yeah, but, but it's not, yeah, it's not the end of, end of democracy. And that's kind of how I um, see it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, I think those who are saying that, I think that's, that's problematic just as on the other side, people were saying that the election is stolen is, is problematic. So, yeah. you know, another issue related to this, I wanted to ask you about is Democrats walking out, deny a quorum. And I think a lot of people would, would wonder, well, 
how does that work? Because typically a quorum is a majority of those present. But yeah, but actually (laughs) Texas and a couple of other states in their state legislatures have quorum requirements of two thirds. And so Democrats could just you know, walk out, which is what they did to at least delay, delay the inevitable, really. But I think that, you know, to try to send a message and publicize this sort of thing. But I wanted to get your take on that because I could hear some folks on the right saying, well, isn't that hypocritical? Aren't Democrats subverting the democratic process in response to maybe what they see as a perceived subversion of the democratic process on the other end? Is it? Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't think it's I don't think it's a subversion of the democratic process. Um, look, it's it's allowed for in the rules, um, and there's a there's a a remedy for it in the rules, which is the the special session. Um, so look, they're they're playing their cards as as that they have, um, and they did this. I mean, obviously, it's it was a publicity kind of attention calling thing, but look, that's part of the process. So I I don't have a huge issue with with the way it worked in texas and and i'd compare that with uh wisconsin um back uh during the um scott walker days where there were democrats who were were fleeing and their their quorum requirements were different who were fleeing and hiding and the you know the, the um governor sent out the highway patrol to, to try to find them and um you know i think that in that case in the wisconsin case it was more of a subversion of democracy because they were trying to really stop the wheels where there there was no any uh yeah uh, other way to 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 do it um you know they're just gonna you know essentially going on strike not doing their job um but in texas i think it's it's look it's sort of a you're allowed to it, it sort of gives you the ability to do this um you know protest essentially and that's what they did and um, look, I, you know, on the merits, I, I don't, I don't agree with it, but, uh, uh, I don't think it's, it's undemocratic, right? Cause it's still, you're playing by the rules and, right. and you're not subverting, you know, there's going to be a vote eventually. Um, so to me, it, it doesn't strike me as any more democratic subversion than just a, you know, the rules committee saying, we're going to refer this back to the, you know, standing committee for more review and th- that kind of thing. So. And I should point out, this isn't something that just Democrats do. And for instance, over in uh, Oregon, they also have that two-thirds quorum requirement. And uh, as it is a Democratic-dominated legislature, Republicans, I think four or five times in the last couple of years, had done the same sort of walkout thing, you know, for for similar similar reasons, not for voting things, but for various things. So the, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Jay, with this is, you know, it seems that President Biden has really, in a way, at least to a certain extent, uh, up the pressure on particularly uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. He mentioned, you know, my two colleagues who vote more often with the other side than with us, which actually is not not which the case. They they're, they're pretty much party line voters. But, you know, it, it, I should also point out that Joe Manchin is the only Senate Democrat who hasn't co-sponsored the For the People Act. So not only is he against the filibuster, he's changing the filibuster. He's also against that legislation, which would essentially override a lot of a lot of these state laws. And it's against the people, Mike, that's what yeah. it sounds like to me. Well, you know, it you're occurred not, to me. For the people, you're against them. Well, I mean, if you look back, you know, the big question, I think, is, you know, what is for a lot of Democrats is what does Joe Manchin want? It's pretty clear to me that if he does kind of cave to this pressure for whatever reason, this is going to be his last term in the Senate. 
uh, you know, he won in 2012 with with just over 60 percent of the vote. But then in 2018, he got just under 50 percent of the vote. And if the libertarian candidate hadn't picked up, I think, a little over four percent, he might not have you know, won at all. And, you know, OK, in, in 2024, when he's up again, he's going to be 76 years old, which is getting up there. But, you know, the, the uh, unfortunately, my party has kind of a gerontocracy thing going on there. And so I, I, I sort of understand that he's, I think, at some level, you know, from a practical politics standpoint, if he wants another term, there's no way he's getting another term if he gives in on this issue, especially if he said very clearly in that Washington Post, I believe it was editorial a few months ago, that he is not going to, he will not uh, support not just ending the filibuster, but weakening it in any way. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to go back on my my uh, prediction that the filibuster will somehow be I don't know if Manchin is going to find a way to do that. I think the pressure will eventually get to the point where he will be persuaded to make some sort of an exception, maybe for voting rights. I don't know, but but you know, we'll, we'll see. That that's kind of my that's kind of my take on that. Well, I'm just saying here here we are. If you remember back before the election, I mean, so many uh, Republicans were saying. If Biden's elected, it's in, you know, the Senate goes to Democrats or, or even close. They're going to push to eliminate the filibuster. They're going to wipe it out. And then it's just going to be uh, they will run roughshod uh, over the republic. And and the response is, no, come on, that's crazy. Uh, nobody wants to do that. And Biden even said, no, he's not interested in in, uh, uh, in doing that. And and here we are. So um, I, I don't I mean, I, I think there's also there's an argument um about you know nuking the filibuster i mean you could go back and ask harry reed how did that work out you know i was actually uh, thinking right? about they, that and, and that uh, you know and, for judicial yeah. appointments and that just the history of that is back in 2013 reed was majority leader democrats had a majority and were deeply frustrated by republican intransigence in in confirming not just appellate court judges but actually a number of district court judges and so they went with what was called at the time now it just seems like a tactical nuclear option but the nuclear option of ending the filibuster for judicial appointments and one of the few democrats who wasn't in support of that was actually joe manchin and you know it's it's easy to play what if because of course then after that republicans ended the filibuster and supreme court nomination citing reed and that precedent but certainly i i would i would think that the federal judiciary would be in a better place from from my perspective if it still took 60 votes to confirm uh to confirm a judge uh, whether supreme court or you know or just a district judge but we are we are not there and i'll admit that i i am conflicted over this because i certainly can see uh i can certainly see a situation in which it's you know january of 2025 and you know was it president desantis and like i said the republicans controlling the house and senate and all sorts of stuff passing without uh without that philip without that filibuster the democrats my party would desperately want to have so it can definitely come back and bite you you know well and and, and again i i don't understand the the rush towards this and uh, I guess it troubles me a little bit. I do. That, I can explain um, the rush, Jay. And the rush is that a lot of people on the left believe that these changes in voting laws in a number of states are going to uh, fundamentally reset the electorate in, in a deeply unfair way that will you know, 
increase, again, unfairly increase the sort of structural right. advantage that conservatives, that Republicans uh, have. And I guess it, I'm it a, could turn the clock back to 2014. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm a little more sanguine about this because it seems to me that all the research that I've I've seen suggest that while this can have a marginal effect, it's not the sort of large scale effect that is going to be likely to make these sort of broad changes. And so I'm I'm concerned about it. I don't think it's a move in the right direction, but I don't think it's going to basically unfairly, unjustly install Republicans in power for the next generation or something like that. I mean, if I were the Democratic Party, I'm, I'm much more concerned about uh, voter registration and uh, inroads that Republicans are making with the Hispanic population and that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing that I think is going to have much greater impact than these voting changes, which I do think will give an advantage to Republicans, but pretty much at the margins. Of course, in close elections, those margins can, you know, those margins can matter quite a lot. As some people have pointed out that, you know, even though Joe Biden got millions more votes than Donald Trump, uh, I think something like 40 something thousand strategically placed votes going the other way in various areas. And all of a sudden, Donald Trump is in the second term. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think that's right. And um, my, my response to those, the is getting rid of the filibuster, though, goes beyond uh, voting rights. Yeah. Right. And I think in some cases, the idea of, of well, we have to do this to save voting rights, to save democracy is cover or, well, we just want to be freaking in charge of everything. Right. I mean, it's 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 not also about uh, Green New Deals and and uh, all sorts of other Democrat uh, Democratic policy uh, issues. And, and, and I think Someone would, I mean, unless you're just really bad at math, and maybe Manchin is is the only one who who gets it. Um, with the Senate, you know, one vote one way or the other, um, uh, th- this would seem partic- particularly ill timed. Um, you know, has anybody checked how Patrick Lee he's feeling lately? Um, I mean, this is. I mean, if, if I'm a, a Democrat, uh, unless the idea is to, and this is the way conser- so many conservatives see it. Uh, the rush they see is, look, Democrats want to seize power right now so they can start doing things that will give them the permanent advantage that that sure. you just said that uh, Democrats fear. Um, uh, and, and those would be things like, well, we'll add a couple states and, and we will uh, completely take over the way uh, states vote and uh, we'll see what we can do about the Electoral College um, and, and so forth. So I, I think that's that's why. So many Republicans see the, yeah. the, and, and the I, rush towards this as as well. There must be something up. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Though I also agree with the the fundamental worldview behind that Democratic position, which is that yes, that would give an advantage to Democrats, but it's an advantage that it's advantage that's based on the will of the people in general, as opposed to, I think, a more Republican view is that, well, no, we have these these federalist, these state-based structures, and so it doesn't matter that Joe Biden wins the election by X million votes because right. states have rights. And Democrats, we, we tend not to look at it in terms of states' rights. We tend to look, look at it in terms more of individual rights in that sense. And so that's, I think, what? You know, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess I well individual rights in terms of voting. I'm, I'm not looking Sorry. at states' rights. I'm looking at it as, and you mentioned sort of the will of the people, and to me that's what it sort of boils down to. Is well, 
who do you want in charge, uh, James Madison or Jean-Jacques Rousseau? Um, I'll go with Madison. Yeah, I, I would argue that the that the choice is not not nearly that that stark. You know, certainly, uh, I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that most Republicans or most Democrats are that far left any more than I think that you know there there certainly are some Republicans that are very far right. But you know, no, no, no. I'm, but I'm I'm talking about the just the the I'm not talking about the the rank and file voters. I'm I'm talking more, you know, the intellectual, you know. Like the you and me of of, of of the parties, right? I mean, the that uh, how how do they look at this? Um, and if the one is is looking at it as uh, this is a constitutional system and that's that's the rule, uh, them's the rules we're playing by, versus uh, look, no, there's a free floating will of the people, and that's what we ought to follow. Um, that's the distinction I'm making. Sure. Yeah. And I think they're, you know, reasonable people can have differences of opinion as to the extent of the, you might call them guardrails. Some would call them restrictions yeah. on the will of the people. And for the and most that's, part, that's the whole point of constitutional government, yeah. right? Is that, that look, the, the will of the people, um, <laughs> you can't trust those knuckleheads. Um, and likewise, you can't trust, um, I mean, it's sort of, this is very much balancing, right? Of you, you can't, trust uh just the the populace at large um but nor can you trust the elite yeah uh, and that's sort of the genius of the constitution right it sort of has both working and you have the the house which is uh does respond to the more populist uh passions of the day uh and then you have the senate which, which is does the, the same the, thing the, now the, <laughs> the, well theoretically well, exactly. originally yeah washington's uh you know language was the cooling saucer yeah yeah uh, that's so much for the anymore. tea of the um, um because uh, that's how people talked back and then instead of talking about assaults on democracy. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, you know, you have a, a president, but there, the president is indirectly elected um, uh, because of the, the fears that you may have a demagogue uh, take over. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, I, I think that's 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 sort of that's sort of a bigger well, you and I sort of mentioned that we don't have a whole lot to go on this this week, so we're we're kind of hitting the more big theoretical yeah. kind of theme. But you know, I, well, one more kind of a political thing before we move on is you know President Biden announced he was putting Vice President Harris in charge on this voting rights issue, kind of the point person, and it, it seemed to me I, I certainly understand what's called the optics of this, but of course, uh, you know, uh, Vice President Harris doesn't exactly have deep ties in the Senate or is not known as a sort of legislative craftsperson or anything like that. And you know, when she was in the Senate, she was pretty much always running for the presidency and held up the far left flank. So this is all about, I think, the optics of it. But but it seems to me that a more I, were I in that position, I think I probably would have I probably would have announced that I would like Joe Manchin to take charge of this issue and make it his baby. And then uh, the frustration that he seems to feel with his Republican colleagues to make him own that. Not that I think that would make much of a difference. But but, yeah, I, I don't really think that I, I don't see this going anywhere, uh, unfortunately. And I do think that's going to hurt the Democrats in the midterms, though, not as much as a lot of doomsayers on the left think. Yeah, well, the, I mean, I, I think the, the fact is the Democrats just don't have the numbers on the, the for the people vote. Um, even I think even with um, and it's more than just just uh, cinema and um, uh, mansion, I think by and large, they, they, they will have. Yeah. That would be a tough vote for a lot of uh, Democratic senators, and I, I just don't think they've got it. 
So they're gonna they're gonna play it as the issue uh, and and have Kamala Harris because of the optics. Yeah, um, get out there. So and as I've as I've said before, I think that the Democrats could have put together legislation that Joe Manchin would have would have full throatedly or not full throatedly, but would have at least been on board with, uh, and that, that the For the People Act was just too broad to to really to really pass, unfortunately. But something like the the Lewis Act, I think, has a better chance of passing. That would have much more limited effect, as we talked about before. But uh, but honestly, it's getting harder and harder for me to see any of that happening. And I know you see that as a good thing. I see that as a bad thing, but not nearly as disastrously end of the Republic, end of the Democratic Party, as I think a lot of folks on the left who are uh, who are kind of you know pushing this issue are. So, yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and talk a little bit about the jobs report and the labor shortage. Everyone deserves nice things, but with all the markups in traditional luxury retail, high quality goods can be awfully expensive. Quince is different. They're a one-stop shop for essential products with low design costs. They've got tees, hoodies, loungewear, pants and shorts, blouses, dresses, skirts. I mean, unless you're a nudist, they've got something for you. And, you know, even if you are clothing optional, they've got home accessories, bedding, bath, decor, all sorts of good stuff. Quince finds the best factories and only partners with those committed to the highest production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability, which is particularly a big deal to me. And because Quince is shipping directly to you with no agents, stores, or other middlemen, you get great 100% factory direct prices on everything. I mean, I've been desperately in need of some new t-shirts, and I was really impressed by the price and quality of their organic Pima cotton selection. And my bath towels, honestly, are looking pretty ratty, too. So Quince's great prices on high-quality Turkish bath towels, they, they really caught my eye. Quality shouldn't be a luxury. You deserve it. So try Quince today. Get free shipping and 365-day free returns by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. Many of their collections sell out immediately, so don't wait. You can save hundreds of dollars on clothing and accessories by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. That's O-N-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash politicsguys. Okay, Jay, so uh, let's uh, get into the, the jobs report that came out on Friday and the situation with labor. I know you have some thoughts about what's going on here, and I do too. Mine are probably going to be a little bit different than yours. I, I do. As you, as, as you hear in the back, uh, Todd Rundgren uh, playing, um, uh, echoing sort of my, my thoughts on, on some what's going on here. But, um, but the last week's um, uh, jobs report – Came up uh, short. Surprisingly, it, it uh, uh, underperformed expectations. The economy created fifty-five thousand, five hundred fifty-nine thousand new jobs, um, uh, but at the same time, the labor force shrank by fifty-three thousand. Um, those are the sort of the, the the big findings, and I think it's a little weird, and and maybe the the numbers are strange when we say created jobs. Because there are, are plenty of job openings, and typically when we say created jobs means there's an opening and someone took it. Um, uh, but, I mean, I, I, I hate to, to move into the anecdotal, but, um, Mike, I mean, ha haven't you also seen this, felt this? I, I know it's where I live. Every place you go has help-wanted signs. Uh, places are offering significant hiring bonuses. Um, and 
the the um uh, you know mood is i mean I'm, there there are so many places that i've uh you go and they say please be patient because we just don't have staff to to handle you um uh and and republicans have looked to uh the fact that we've been paying an extra 300 dollars uh, uh per week and uh, well, I guess we'll call it expanded unemployment benefits, um, as well as the the numerous um, other uh, uh, stimulus payments. Uh, and what's coming up next is going to be the uh, child tax credit payments, uh, which are going to be paid sort of ahead of time, uh, sort of so a little bit like a rolling stimulus, uh, as opposed to just getting it when you you file your taxes. Um, now, amidst amidst this. Um, Wages uh, annualized since March are up 24%. Now, again, that's that's annualized, right? Um, so it's probably not that they're going to continue that that increase. Um, but uh, Mike, what what are your thoughts on on this? And is is it an issue of um, the government is is paying people to stay home, um, or that uh, as as Democrats tend to put it, uh, the jobs just need to pay more? Well, I mean, I, I do tend to think that uh, the jobs just need to uh, just need to pay more. And that's that's really the issue. Uh, and so I don't really have I mean, I, it seems to me that a, a market based solution to, to this would be to say, well, if if you are an employer and you are having trouble hiring people, well, that means that you need to offer more. And once you offer more, you know, I'll get into the anecdotal as well. I've seen a number of stories about uh, businesses who said, you know, we were having a whole lot of trouble hiring people. Then we announced we were going to be offering a starting fifteen dollar an hour wage. And all of a sudden we had applications flooding in. And so I, I think there's a pretty simple solution to this problem is if you need more workers, you need to pay them more and they will they will come. But should these businesses, particularly small businesses, and, and what you say is is entirely true um, in terms of businesses competing with one another for employment for employees, but should they have to compete with the federal government? Yeah, and I, I think right? I think they absolutely should. Now, I I think that that competition. I, no, should, I mean I mean the federal government as yeah as I know what you mean. Money as opposed to in a federal government as an employer. Yeah, I, I I know what you mean, and yes, I I agree that they should have to compete. Now, by compete in that sense, I believe uh, just like a lot of people on the left do that there should be a well a a, a minimum wage. Now, of course, there is a minimum wage, but that, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, but but I believe that that minimum wage. You know, the, the current federal minimum wage is seven twenty five an hour. It's been there for well over a decade, right? And now various states have different minimum wages of their own. And so, what that minimum wage does is that is, in a sense, well, it's not competition, but like the direct payments, but it basically does set that floor. And I I certainly believe that that floor needs to be raised and that's being done by an in that's being done in sort of a different way right because people are getting the equivalent or can be getting on un un unemployment the equivalent of roughly fifteen dollars an hour for staying home essentially and so yeah and actually I've, I've seen numbers when you count in all these other things and also you consider that the staying at home money um, isn't subject to payroll taxes Right. Uh, that that it, in, in the 21 states, uh, that the numbers could come up to $25 an hour. Yeah. And now I would say short term, oh, I would say that's not that's not a policy I would support long term, just continued enhanced unemployment payments. And in fact, those 
expire after Labor Day. So it's going to be roughly three months from now. Those will those will expire. And I think that's unless that's, they're renewed. Right. And I, I think that's a good thing. And I think it made sense to have that in place because a lot of people had, I think, real and understandable concerns, health concerns related to the pandemic. And by Labor Day, I believe we should be at a vaccination rate where most of those concerns should be reasonably allayed. And so this was a temporary measure and I would not support it as a permanent measure. And so I guess that's how I feel about that specifically. But in terms of, you know, my larger issue is with the minimum wage. And I, like a lot of people on the left, would like to see a nationwide, you know, $15 minimum wage. I think that would be an excellent idea. I also would be very much in favor of phasing out the tip minimum wage, which federally is $2.13 an hour. Now, I don't think that should be phased out or that be ended directly, but maybe phased out over, you know, 10 years or something like that. So I, I would absolutely be in favor of that. And that, of course, would end up with the same sort of result for businesses is they would have to pay employee potential employees more to get them to, to get them to come on. So, but again, looking at where we are now, I mean, is, isn't there a risk that, that we're seeing to some point that this inability to get people back to work uh, is, is hampering the recovery? Well, sure it is. And I mean, I guess I, that, yeah. Well, I think it is, but I think there are also understandable health concerns. It's, you know, these things were put into place. We're not dealing, I think a lot of people, well, everyone knows this, we're not dealing with just another recession. This was a, this was an enormous, completely unexpected shock to the system in, in so many ways. And so we have to weigh these. I mean, there, there are still, you know, vaccination rates are up and that's great, but there are still people dying every day from this. And again, I said, I think this was a reasonable, these were reasonable temporary measures. I would not support them as permanent measures. And sure, uh, doing some of this delays the recovery, but we're not talking about just an economic recovery. We're talking about a pandemic that has killed over 600,000 Americans. And, 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 you know, and no, and and I, and I get all that, but what's, what's the connection between uh, that and an extra 1200 bucks a month? It's that there are a number of people, especially people in very sort of high contact service industries who feel understandably concerned about contracting COVID and taking it home to their families. Sure. And so therefore that extra, that extra money I think is, is understandable and helpful in the short term. And of course, for a while, there was also the additional factor of a number of but, businesses being closed and now they're opening up again. Right. And I think you're right on the businesses being closed piece, but for the, the person who is staying at home now and saying, look, I'm, I don't want to go back to, to work because I'm concerned about COVID. Please pay me an extra 1200 bucks. Uh, on top of unemployment, uh, on top of stimulus payments, um, wouldn't, I mean, what's the incentive uh, to get vaccinated, right? I mean, what if, what if you said, hey, we're stopping these these payments as, as uh, I think 21 states are now, uh, 25 states um, uh, are, are now poised to do. Um, doesn't that send the message, look, you're going to have to go back to work so go get vaccinated. Sure, I guess you know you, you or, seem or, to be. Or, sure. or the option is 
not get vaccinated, stay home, keep collecting the money. Well, except that money's going to run out after Labor Day. And I guess you seem to be a little more comfortable with a with a stick based approach. And I seem to be a little more comfortable with a carrot based approach. And maybe that's a difference more broadly on the left and the right. I'm saying that you're the carrot. See, the, the idea of a carrot based approach would be like you hold the carrot out in front of the horse to make the horse go someplace. Um, in, in your scenario, it seems you're just kind of sitting there feeding the horse carrots. Yeah, I guess you're right. So it's more of a, I'm, I'm more, I guess I'm more of a, uh, I hate to use it. I, I was thinking of a, a, a caring sort of nurturing based approach and you're more of a sort of beat them over the head with the stick approach. Uh, that, that's, that's painting it <laughs> too broadly, certainly. But, but yeah, I think, I think in general that we need to have a little more patience with this. And I think it's, it's easy to overreact and say, well, we need to start these payments right now. They're, they're going to be stopped in a few months and the recovery will come on. And, and, and I think everything will not, everything will be fine. But, but I think again, that this, I agree with a lot of people on the left who say that this just sort of demonstrates or has given people a, a greater understanding of, wow, you know, I'm in this horrible job. And a lot of people who are servers or work in kitchens or the hospitality industry, uh, so-called know that these are, these are rough, oftentimes brutal jobs. And they, I've, I've done it. Yeah. They don't, yeah. they don't pay very well at all. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, wait a second, why is that the case? And given the option to not do those horrific, you know, those really uh, horrific is too strong, but these, these, bad jobs at bad pay, people are saying, no, I'd rather not do that. And I think the answer to that is not to say, well, we're going to pull your support, go ahead and do it. I think the answer is to say, you know what, we're going to make sure that that your employers are required to pay you a living wage to do these jobs. And I am very much in favor of uh, of a living wage. Isn't there something else, though, that and this this I mean, I'm I'm very old fashioned, but I I would hope you're sort of old fashioned in the same way that it used to be that if you're you're an able bodied person and able to work and there is work available, uh, there's something really sort of dishonorable about saying, look, I'm not going to work and I'm just going to keep collecting money from those who are. Yeah, and I don't think most people feel that way. Most people, uh... (laughs) whether they feel that way or not. you know, that's no, most that's, people, most people want to do something that they feel is meaningful and fulfilling and that pays them a reasonable wage for their efforts. And there are a lot of jobs that just aren't like that, you know. And so I think that's the, that's that's really the problem is there are these awful jobs that don't pay much. And so, of course, people, if given an option, will will not do those jobs. And so that's why I think, you know, for instance, uh, if you take a look you if you take a look at the the uh, kind of interesting thing I found this last week, something called the MIT Living Wage Calculator, and uh, it basically goes through. It's a long, involved sort of thing, but you can see what the living wage their their view of the living wage is for various conditions in various states, cities, metropolitan areas, that sort of thing. And for instance, for Cleveland, they calculated the living wage for two parents working with one child is sixteen oh five an hour. And of course, that's you know far higher than the federal than the Ohio minimum wage, which I believe is eight eighty an hour, I think, or something like that, and well higher than the Ohio tip minimum wage of four forty an hour. And so, I think that's the situation 
a lot of families are in is they have these, they, they can get this employment, but it's awful employment and it doesn't pay them really a living wage. It may keep them just above the poverty line, but I think we can do a lot better, which is why I think that the move for a $15 an hour national minimum wage, the sort of thing that voters in, you know, Republican Florida approved, I think that's, that's the way to go. Well, it's, it's easy at some point to, to do that, say, hey, we're going to just raise the minimum wage. And then once the consequences uh, come about, um, that's a, a different story. But but going going back to just the idea that I mean, is, is it the, the job of the economy to provide uh, self-fulfillment uh, for for people or is it I mean, look, I, I think it's it's great if you can have a job that's that's self-fulfilling. Uh, and you feel is important and and worthwhile, uh, and that pays you well. Um, I believe look, that. Yeah, life, that's I've a had, good I've question. Had plenty, I've had plenty of jobs that yeah. aren't, um, and the reason you do it is because you do it for the money, and because you have to, and because uh, you're responsible for yourself and or your family. Uh, and and it's it's not a matter of it to be the again. This this just strikes me as. Um, to say that, look, I'm going to just stay home and, and collect money from other people who are, are working um, because, yeah, that that job isn't isn't quite what I want. Um, I, I think that's that's a that's a big moral problem. And I, and I believe it's a big moral problem to allow employers to shamelessly exploit workers. And that's how I that's what I feel happens in the labor market, especially at the lower ends of the labor market. And if you're going to ask somebody to do ruling and degrading labor, then I think that the federal government absolutely should say, if that's fine, but you're going to have to pay these people at least this minimum, and we're going to raise that minimum for what it is to uh, to make this a, a living wage, or at least something approaching a living wage. And so, yeah, I agree, it's a moral problem. Though I see the moral problem on the part of the on the part of the employers who are allowed to exploit uh, exploit workers without any sort of consequence. What do you? I mean, I guess you know, looking at say the restaurant industry, small independent restaurants, uh, they they simply can't afford to to pay uh, the type of wages that that may happen. And and look, I think what you may end up end up with, for example, in fast food, um, particularly with the the push to more electronic uh, uh, ordering and so forth, is look, okay, then what we'll do if you don't want to do this degrading, demeaning uh, job, which, again, I, I, I really, I, I sort of take issue with, with, with that because I, there's the, a Republican principle, or at least it should be a Republican principle, that, that any job is worthwhile, that no job is, is degrading, um, that, that all work is, is uh, there's something good and honest about, about doing it. Um, See, that's where, yeah, I would just, dis- well, I, maybe degrading is the wrong word, but I certainly would argue that dehumanizing is uh, when you are just basically, you know, if you spend eight hours a day inserting whatever tab A into slot B on some sort of large line or something like that, that is, that is, I, I think, by its very nature, dehumanizing work. And I, you're going to love my you know, use of the Marxist terminology, but I believe that, you know, people are alienated. For workers, in many cases, are alienated from the from, from the products of their labor, and there's no real connection like there was in an earlier sort of pre-industrial era, and that does 
make a big, big difference. That wasn't certainly the, you know, the circumstances that pertained for most people along the, around the times of the founding of this country, but certainly in, in, in modern post-industrial America and the world in general, that absolutely is the case for a, an awful lot of workers. Most people aren't fortunate enough like you and I are to have work that is in many cases, you know, intellectually challenging and varied and provides a certain level of fulfillment. But but maybe they don't want or need that all the time, right? I mean, there, like I said, there have been plenty of jobs now, I've taken that have not been intellectually now. Fulfilling. Now who's being? Uh, but you know, I I did it, like you know, right? Because that's that's what you do because you needed a job. But but now and, who's and, being patronizing? I mean, you talk about being patronizing on the left, saying that well, maybe those people who aren't like us don't need meaning in their work. Maybe you're not saying that, and I just misheard you. No, I'm not. Know. I'm not saying that okay. at all. I'm saying all work is meaningful, right? Uh, but that's just and, and not true. It's, it's, I mean, that's that's it's simply I, I would. That's why I guess we're di- where we disagree. I, I would say inherently work in which you have a direct connection to your labor and you see the products of your labor. And it's something that you feel and that you can see a positive result in the world of that is inherently more meaningful, more fulfilling than work in which that is not the case. And so I think to argue that all jobs have the same amount of meaning and it's just on the worker to find that in there, I think that's that's not that's just not an accurate statement to make. Well, I guess we'll we'll just we'll disagree on on that, but um in in the meantime, I I guess we will just see how we we get through this summer um uh with so many of these these shortages because the the places where they're Ironically, the, the shortages are hitting the hardest are the places that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. Um, and, and the other thing that we're going to see is is inflation, right? This not there's not there is no such thing as as a free lunch, and inflation uh, disproportionately is going to hit uh, the the folks on the lower end of the the income scale. So. And, and and again, yeah, yeah. So we we will certainly see. I think that this is all going. To, I, I think that maybe both sides are jumping to their preferred ideological conclusions a bit too quickly, just given the fact that what we are going through is so very unprecedented. And maybe you will agree with me that that oftentimes it's easy to kind of jump to those conclusions, and that we're going to know a lot more, say, five or six months from now than we do today. Well, I, no, because okay. I, I'm thinking when Fair you enough. say, look, when you when you when you inject uh, this amount of, of money into the economy and subsidize not working and then you sort of scratch your head it's like, why? Well, I wonder why people aren't going back to work. Uh, I, I, I don't think I don't know that, that you need a whole lot of study uh, to see that that people uh, getting paid more not to, to work uh, discourages them from going to work. Sure, but what, what I'm saying is that this, uh, assuming that the extended unemployment insurance is not extended, or that the extra unemployment insurance is not extended, I don't think that there's going to be this these horrific consequences of this because it's not going to be extended. You think that you think okay. that the extra money is going to be extended? After Labor Day? I think there's a possibility of it. Okay. Um, Biden has indicated that he, he's not in favor of it, but, you know, he could change his mind. Um, so I'm I, I don't. Um, and, and even if it isn't extended, well, we've still got the problem through Labor Day. That's still 
keeping people out of the labor market uh, uh, artificially by having the government compete uh, by paying them not to work. And, and again, so it, like it's not a fair competition, right? To say, uh, look, company A will pay you money for doing this. Company B, B will pay you money for this. Uh, government will pay you well, almost quite as almost as much, if not more. We're just sitting at home watching TV. And I, I, right? I, I, I mean, that's that's not that's not market competition. Um, if you told me, look, yeah, you can make eighty percent, fifty percent of your income, uh, and just sit home and do nothing, um, would I take that? I mean, that's that's what they call retirement, right? No, but 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 you um, wouldn't, and, and most people would, because most people don't want to sit home and do nothing. Uh, people have a, I think. Maybe you disagree with this, but people have a desire for for meaning and connection and doing things that matter in their lives. And so work is the way that we do this. And so I think the idea. No, 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 it's not. Oh, that's that's the thing. Work is I mean, work may be one of the ways we do that. Sure. But but what about, you know, family, friends, organizations, religion, hobbies? I mean, there's a whole lot of. There, there are plenty of, of people out there who may work some kind of uh, crummy day job that they don't find intellectual fulfillment in. Uh, but, but you know, every weekend they go fishing and they really love it, and that's that's their thing, and that's where they find their meaning, and and they they work hard doing this this job that they don't like uh, in order to be able to do other stuff that they they yeah, do sure, like sure. Uh, when when they're off work. So I, I mean, I think it's great if you can find meaning in your job, um, but. And this this is this could be sort of like our my commencement address, um, right? I mean, so many of these like oh, if you if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. Well, no, that's 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 bullshit. Um, but I, I think you can. No, I agree with I, you. Actually, I, my, my, yeah, my okay. commencement address is get a damn job. I agree and, with you about that, but I but I also believe that if if you are going to ask somebody to do a job that is that does not provide that sort of thing, then it's not unreasonable for government to say, you know what, we're going to make sure that at least you have to pay that person a living wage to do that job. That's nobody's idea of you know, wonderful, meaningful, fulfilling, life-affirming type of work. And that's where, that's where you right. and I would part company on that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that pretty much takes us. We, we thought we were going to get into the crime issue, but we will get into that, except that will be on the bonus show. But before we get to that bonus show, I think we have some recommendations to close today. Right, Jay? Yeah. So my recommendation, and this is going to be, um, Mike, you're going to think terribly elitist. Um, but I, I and, and again, it's sort of a narrow audience, but uh, Ward Farnsworth is the dean of the uh, University of Texas Law School. And he's written a number of books uh, on writing and speaking. Um, the first uh, one being the elements of um, classical uh, English uh, style, another, uh, another elements of classical English rhetoric and classical English metaphor. Um, and if you're into writing, speaking, uh, doing it better, um, these these books are absolutely fantastic because it sort of breaks down uh, all the, the different um, methods, the, the different tools of the trade, uh, and provides just wonderful examples. If nothing else, uh, the books are fun to read just for the examples they provide uh, from, you know, it's, it's Shakespeare, Churchill, uh, Lincoln, uh, et cetera, saying this is this is how you do it. Um, and, and I think it's, it would be fantastic uh, improvement in our, our political rhetoric. Uh, if if members of Congress would would read uh, these books um, and also just people writers of 
writers of op-eds and, and um, uh, my God, like the kids at Vox, uh, you know, really just, but, but anyway, uh, Ward Farnsworth and Mike also, interestingly, he's also written a book on uh, stoicism. Hmm. I, I love that name, Ward Farnsworth. It sounds like somebody who, if he did not go to, uh, not, did not go to an Ivy League school, I kind of picture him somewhere in, in, I don't know, in Greenwich or something like that, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, oh, could there, could seen, there be a waspier the name? On the, on the book, on the book jacket. Yes, he very much looks like you would expect Ward Farnsworth to yeah, look like. Yeah. Although I guess the only way it could make it better is he were Ward Farnsworth the third or something like that. Yes. So, but you know maybe his kid will carry on that line. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, I, we will have a link for that in in the the show notes. Uh, I guess I I might have mentioned this a, a while ago. I'll have sort of a, not necessarily a recommendation. Uh, could it be an anti recommendation? I don't know. A while ago. With great excitement, I picked up a copy of the first volume in uh, Barack Obama's uh, autobiography, memoirs, I guess they call them, A Promised Land. Uh, you know, I, I ended up bailing on this 701-page book I checked uh, before page 100. Uh, I feel like it should have been called something like, I don't know, allow me to explain or why everything I did was absolutely the best thing I could have done under the circumstances, except for some like minor things that kind of humanize. Anyway, I, I hate, I hate political autobiographies. I don't know why I thought this one would be different. They just feel so incredibly self-serving and, and false, you know, in a way. And even from someone who yes. is a politician, I admire like Barack Obama greatly admire God, it was just painful to read the purple prose and uh, just the campaign type talk. I mean, you know, language just. Oh, and this is like oh, the, the third of such books, right? I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, yeah, I, I you know, it's just, I, yeah, and it doesn't really. It's almost like is, he really likes writing books about himself. This is bipartisan, of course. I mean, politicians are raised as, or become, you know, politicians are raised as politicians, whatever conform themselves into this mold. And I think it just warps their minds for better or for worse. And so it's for the same reason, I'm not going to read the John Boehner book. Exactly. Exactly. You know, though I got to say, I, 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 I maybe am a little more inclined to read the Boehner book just because it looks like it's a little more kind Probably of more fun, a, a little more earthy, I guess. Yeah. Then, but, but no, I exactly. So, but it was disappointing. I suppose I kind of expected more of a, insidery honest thing which was dumb of me and i should have known better so mea culpa on that but i, I love barack obama but god political autobiographies are just painful unless you're interested in just kind of you know hagiography which i guess almost all autobiographies are to it to a certain extent so there you go all right well i don't know if they should put a link on that for the for, for that but okay anyway uh, on our bonus show which we will be recording in just a minute, which will be available to Patreon supporters Wednesday morning. We will be talking about rising big city crime. We'll be talking a little bit about Pride Month, President Biden's proclamation, and that Florida law about uh, not allowing transgender women in women's sports. And, of course, the truth. Is it out there, the UFO report? Uh, that should be a fun thing to talk about as well. And maybe we'll even get to some listener mail if we have the time. And all of that will be in your feed Wednesday morning if you're a Patreon supporter. If you're not, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, if you would like to get that bonus show, but you can't afford to support the podcast right now, just send me an email, Mike at politics guys.com. And I will make sure you get that midweek show. 
And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as are ratings and reviews and especially sharing episodes on social media. That makes a big difference. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, Nathan Sosnowski, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.